Good morning. Uh, today, we're starting our series on the book of James, and uh, we finished up a series on the Psalms this summer. We kind of had an intro sermon uh, last Sunday, and uh, we started these interviews of people giving testimony to how they've been sacrificially committed. And so we heard from the Hughes last week, heard from the Seagrass this week. We got surprises the next couple of weeks, uh, in the couple of weeks to come. So uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, you didn't leave us in the dark about who we are, who you are, and what our world's like. But Lord, you showed us. You showed us in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to it as, uh, as you come to it. It's a living book, Lord, that you want to interact with us personally, individually, make applications to us that are specific to us. Lord, would you do that in these moments? And uh, Lord, most of all, feed us. Uh, we are hungry for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're very familiar with the New Testament, uh, you know that it starts out with the Gospels, and we have a long book, a history of the early church with Acts. And then uh, for the most part, the rest of the New Testament is a series of letters, most of which were written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul usually starts each of his letters with uh, some long uh, explanations of uh, how he's giving the theological implications for the life and work of Jesus. There's, he's a teacher extraordinaire. And then the last couple chapters, or last chapter or so, they're the practical implications of those theological teachings. So, for instance, in the book of Romans, you have 11 chapters of theology, then you have four chapters on morality or on behavior. Well, James isn't like that at all. <laughs> Uh, James is one long string of imperatives. He packs 59 commands into 108 verses. That means he can't go two verses without giving you a command. And he's writing to a group of Christians, a group of Christians who know their Bibles. They do really well at Bible Monopoly. So he doesn't spend his time teaching and explaining. What James is passionate about is he's passionate about people living out the faith. What James knows is that a profession of faith oftentimes doesn't lead to practicing the faith. So it comes down to our level. He, he offers concrete, concrete counsel on a whole array of issues, things like trials and poverty and riches and social justice and how you use words and worldliness and boasting and planning and prayer and illness, things that you have real questions about, things you really are facing today, things you will face tomorrow. He's declaring over and over again that obedience is the hallmark of a genuine and living faith. I mean, after all, he should be the one who knows. I mean, this James is likely the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. This is different than the two apostles named James. You have James, who's part of the crew of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. It's likely not him. He was a very early Christian martyr. Then you have James, the son of Alphaeus, who's also an apostle, and he's barely heard of in the New Testament except in the list of the apostles or the, the disciples. But then in Acts, we see a, a third James, James, the brother of Jesus. He becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church. He plays a key role at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And it's somewhat surprising that he would play a key role like this in the early church. I mean, think about uh, Jesus' comments and Jesus' interactions with his family during the Gospels. There's all kinds of family tension. I mean, his family mocks him in John 7. His family tries to restrict his ministry in Mark 3. 
Jesus' family interrupting while he's teaching in Matthew chapter 12. Now, if my kids try to do that today, it ain't going to last very long. Then you get to the crucifixion and you don't see any of Jesus' siblings. But then something happens. In 1 Corinthians 15, we hear how Jesus, after he's resurrected, appears to his brother, James. And it looks like that's where James is converted. So James is really passionate about your faith affecting your behavior. But his insistence on the need for obedience is not disconnected from grace. I mean, James still makes statements like this in his letter. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He says that healing is offered when we confess our sins. He says, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. But he doesn't wait long to make us uncomfortable. He does it in verse 2. When he makes a jab on us, tells us we are to have joy in our sufferings. So let's read this text today, verses 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The word of the Lord. You notice James comes right out and calls us to do something irrational, doesn't he? In verse 2, he says, have joy in suffering. See, what's rational for us, the natural response for us, what's instinctive for us when suffering comes is one of two things. Either we get resentful or we resign to it. If we get resentful, it's much like Job and his wife, their interaction. Do you remember this? In the book of Job, Job has lost his wealth, he's lost his sons, he's lost his health, and his wife comes up to him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and be done with it. See, she's mad. She's mad about the suffering. Job responds, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? See, even though Job is not resentful, he's not being stoic. He's not resigning to his, he's not resigning to his painful circumstances as just an inevitability of living in a fallen world. He's not doing that. He's engaging with his pain and his suffering. He's, he's, he's weeping with sackcloth and ashes. He really is grieving. A lot of times we, we respond like a stoic. We say, you, you know, I'm just going to grit my teeth and get through this. We live in a fallen world. What would you expect? 
But even if we don't resign to our suffering, we're not resentful of it. We, 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 we ask some unhelpful questions. We ask questions like, why is this happening to me? Whose fault is this? Is this a result of my sin? Is this happening because of satanic opposition? Is, it, is this the consequence of living in a fallen world? We ask those kinds of questions, but there's a different route that's given by James of how we relate to our suffering. It's not being resentful. It's not resigning to our suffering. It's not asking helpful questions. Instead, it's joy. I, I know that sounds possible. And James gives us three reasons for us to have joy in verses 2 to 11. But let me just say this. If you know somebody who's suffering <laughs> and you show up to their room in the hospital or to their house and you bring out this passage, um, I'm going to have them tell on you immediately. This is not the right passage to give someone in the middle of their pain. This is something for you today and for me to stow away. This is for us to put in storage and to get out when suffering comes. This is a tough passage for those who are in the middle of suffering. Those who are in the middle of their suffering, they need to know other biblical truths. Truths like God is with you in your suffering. That's true. You got to know that God has suffered, so He knows what it's like for suffer to be in your shoes. Those are the truths you need to know. But this passage right here is when you put in a file and when you get out to help you reframe your suffering later. All right, so here are the three reasons to have joy in your suffering. The first one you see in verses two to four, and it's that it produces steadfastness. But look how he starts it. He says, consider Consider, he's, he's talking to us cognitively. He's not telling us so much how to think or how to feel. He's telling us how to think. He's not saying, pretend this is fun. He's not commanding his readers to enjoy their suffering. He's not advocating for the Christian to have this all-encompassing, joyful emotion during their severe trials. He's not doing that. What James is doing right here is he's saying, remember what God is doing in your suffering. See, God will use trials to make you a whole Christian. God will use your trials to, to, to grow us into the very people that he's created and envisioned you to be, to the, the very Christian that you were saved to be. See, trials are the spiritual equivalent to fertilizer for our faith. Because what they produce is steadfastness. And then what steadfastness produces is perfection or completion. See, when you're in suffering, you're myopically obsessed with your immediate pain, aren't you? I mean, if, if you skin your knee, you're not thinking about the fact that your heart's beating. What you're thinking about is your skinned knee. But what God has in mind when, when we're going through suffering is that God is obsessed with the finished product. God is gunning for you to be recreated into the image of his son. And his number one tool to get you there is suffering. Think of it as tempering metal. See, tempering metal is, is a heat treatment that's applied to certain kinds of metals. Metals like steel and cast iron. And what tempering does is that it makes those metals less brittle, makes them tougher. And think about it. I mean, toughness and tenacity and constancy and grit, they're precisely what we need. It's precisely what you're going to need to love others when the going gets tough. It's exactly what you're going to need to fight to believe every day that God's good. Toughness is what you're going to need when you're marginalized for your faith in an unbelieving world. Toughness is what you're going to need to stay sober. But see, you see what happens? After you've endured these trials with perseverance, something beautiful comes up from the ashes. It's 
completeness. It's perfection. And what James means by perfection, what he means by completion is not someone who doesn't sin. What he means is someone who's well-rounded with all kinds of virtue. Think about this as an illustration. Imagine that you're given trial, your particular kind of suffering, the thing that you wish would go away in your life. Consider that an irritation. It's kind of like a grain of sand that gets into the mantle of an oyster, or the rim of an oyster. See, that little piece of sand, it, 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 gets, it gets lodged in that lining, and it's got to be annoying if you're the oyster, right? I mean, it'd be like having a piece of sand, a grain of sand in your eye. It's inconvenient. It hurts. But for the oyster, it eventually becomes a pearl. The oyster covers this piece of sand with the most precious part of its being, and it produces a pearl. The irritation that, was, that, that, that it was causing is stopped because the oyster encrusted with this pearly formation and a true pearl is really just a victory over irritation, isn't it? See, in the same way, every irritation that gets into your life is an opportunity for a pearl culture. So you begin to welcome those irritations, those grains of sand. You welcome them with love and you, you wait for beauty to be produced. Not long ago, um, I was with a friend, an old college friend, probably. I mean, I had lots of crazy college friends, but this, this one, this guy takes the cake. I mean, offline, I tell you some stories. But um, let's just say it's been, it's been a really long time. I, I saw him not that long ago, but before I saw him, it had been years. This guy lives far away, and he happened to be in town, and he called me out of nowhere and says, hey, I'm in town. Can I come over? And I was like, sure. And I'd kind of heard through a mutual friend that he had gone through a hard time, but then I heard it firsthand from him. And in the span of time that I had not been able to talk to him, lots of bad things happened for him. His career had bottomed out. He had had a child with a woman he barely knew. The love of his life dumped him. And all this sent him into a, an addiction that he was already deep into before all these bad circumstances. So he had to go to rehab. And now he had been sober for over a year when we were together. He came over, Jen and I, Jen knew him in college too, and we spent a few hours with him and we got done, and uh, he walked out the front door, and Jenna looked at me with her jaw pretty much on the ground, and she said, I would have never thought that our old friend would be that beautiful of a person. And it was true. Suffering had produced in him something beautiful. So, brother and sister, when you know that's what your suffering is doing to you, you can have joy. See, when suffering hits, you've got to take a step back. You've got to consider, because that, that's when you can get the wide-angle lens out, and you can see that God is doing something in you. He's producing steadfastness in you, and there's a completeness coming, and that's what you're really hungry for. That's one reason to have joy. The second one you see in verses 5 to 8. The other reason you can have joy in your suffering is that it's going to make you pray. It's going to make you cry out to God for wisdom. And James entices you to do so by describing God in a certain kind of way. Do you see it? In verse 5, he said, he, he's, he's saying, come to God and ask him for wisdom. Because remember, God is generous. He's generous to all people. He's generous without reproach. But it's hard to remember God's like that in your suffering. What, what do you think God's like when you're in the middle of suffering? I mean, you usually think he's stingy or he's not generous at all. Or he might be generous to some, but... Not to me. He gives, but 
he does so begrudgingly. He does so with some disappointment towards you or some, some, some degree of disapproval towards you. That's the way he gives. But that's not what God's like. God sincerely wants to give you the most precious resource that you need during your suffering, and it's wisdom. Why is wisdom the most precious resource you can have in the middle of suffering? It's this. Suffering is a way of disorienting you, doesn't it? Suffering has a way to make you think that up is down and down is up. You need to know what to do in the middle of your suffering, and that's where wisdom comes in. See, wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is just, it's, it's just things you know in your head, but wisdom is being able to take principles about the knowledge of who God is, what the world's like, who you are, and then begin to apply it to your situation. And this kind of wisdom, it's, it's available to you by the handful and the truckload full when you're in suffering. And God's eager to give it to you, but just because God's eager to give it to you doesn't mean that he doesn't require something from those who ask. He does require something. You see it there in the text. He wants you to be as sincere as he is. See, the text says that the person who doubts is unstable and confused and a victim of their circumstances. And usually somebody who doubts in, in our culture, this is, this is something our culture champions to some degree, doesn't it? Our culture says that doubting is a noble thing, that doubters in many ways are seen as courageous loners, but the Bible never condones doubting. I mean, the Bible gives room for people of faith to also have doubt. You see it in the Psalms, people who are honest about their doubts. You see Jesus being tender with doubters, don't you? I mean, he's tender with John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He's tender with Thomas in, in John chapter 20. He's tender with the father of a sick boy in Mark chapter 9 when Jesus asks him, believe, and the father responds, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus is tender with those people. So it's clear that Doubt can be a good thing when it's confessed to God and given over to him, but many times doubt doesn't do that. Doubt doesn't lead us in that direction. It leads us in the kind of way that James is talking about here. So brother and sister, God is generous to you. He's generous to all and he's going to give without reproach. But if you come to him and you ask for wisdom and you confess your doubts, I think you'll find it. You'll find that your doubts haven't disqualified you because your doubts are, the, are what have driven you to prayer. So now you see two reasons for joy in your suffering, don't you? You see that it produces steadfastness there in 2 to 4. You see that it makes you cry for wisdom in 5 to 8. And then this is the weird part. <laughs> Verses 9 to 11 is an interesting thing for James to tack on here because he gives us the third reason is that Suffering exposes our relationship to money. Do you see it in verses 9 to 11? In verse 9, he talks to the poor person. In verses 10 to 11, he talks to the rich person. In verse 9, when he's talking to him about suffering, he, I think he's talking about it because what the poor are tempted to think is that if they had money, that they could make their suffering go away. Or if they had money, they could have prevented the suffering from ever having occurred. But both these things are delusions to James. He wants the poor to see that they're rich. He wants them to see that they have an advantage in their suffering. He specifically wants them to see their exalted status. See, being poor produces a lowliness of spirit that keeps you open to God. 
I mean, Jesus flatly says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. See, many people, they've asked me, why have we planted a church in this neighborhood? People have questions about drugs or crime or violence. These are real things in our world, especially our neighborhood. But there's some advantages because the advantage is it puts you in direct contact with the poor in many ways that we can avoid in our everyday lives. But I can tell you, I've, I've lived in the neighborhood now for eight years and I've learned some gospel dynamics from the poor that I could have never learned if I would never moved here, if our church wasn't here. What I've learned is there's not, there's not this delusion that money can save me. There's not this delusion among the poor that, 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 that money is what makes my life worth living. What you see among the poor is this openness to God. So in many ways, I'm here. I live in this neighborhood. I like our church being in this neighborhood, not so much to save the poor, but in some ways to be saved by the poor. Because suffering exposes your relationship with money. Now look at those who are rich. Look what he says in verses 10 and 11. They have a different set of problems when it comes to money. See, when you're rich, you're prone to pride. You're prone to self-sufficiency. You're prone to self-reliance. You're prone to trusting in your abilities. That's until you start to suffer. See, it's then that you see that you're at the mercy of your circumstances just like a poor person. See, rich people get cancer. Rich people suffer from natural disaster. Rich people make a train wreck of their life through a series of bad decisions. So suffering for the rich person becomes a gift. Because it's got the potential to wake you up from your folly. It has the ability to put you on a trajectory that you were on when you were converted. See, when you're converted and you become a Christian, you're beginning to learn to trust God and rely on Him and to pray. When you start to suffer, you're put back into all those rhythms once again. All because of your circumstances. And then you'll no longer look to your money, but you'll look to God. See, see, let me zoom back here. In verses 2 to 4, you see how you can have joy in your suffering because it produces character. You see verses 5 to 8, it forces you to, 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 to ask for wisdom. And verses 9 to 11, you see how it exposes your relationship with money. And then you get joy in your suffering. So don't you want to be a mature person? Don't you want to be a person of substance and death? Well, suffering will make you like that. Don't you want to be more wise? Nothing will make you pray for wisdom like going through suffering. Don't you want to have a right relationship with money? Nothing will put your heart right with money like suffering will. See, what James is trying to do is to coax you to reframe your suffering. He's showing you that there are real-time benefits in this life for the suffering we endure. But then in verse 12, he gets out a big stick. In verse 12, he dangles before you the benefit of all benefits. He dangles before us what we will receive in the life to come, and it's the crown of life. He's not talking about a gem-studded piece that's worn by kings and queens. He's probably referring to a, a laurel wreath that's worn by victors in athletic contests. See, 1 Corinthians 9.25 says that just as athletes train to gain a crown, Christians endure training to gain an eternal crown. 
Jesus in Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. So brother and sister, endure your trial. Your suffering will get you internal resources that are of infinite value and use in this life. Endurance for your suffering will bestow on you a crown of life in the life to come. And see, you can endure your trial because there's someone who for the joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. You can endure because the founder of your salvation was made perfect, mature, complete through suffering. You can endure because there is someone who grew in wisdom, who was considered wise when he told parables, and who was wisdom incarnate. You can endure because there's someone who didn't have a dollar to his name, who didn't have a place to lay his head, who didn't have an estate to pass down. He was poor. You can endure because there's someone who wore a crown of thorns so that you can wear the crown of life. And this someone is Jesus. And he's going to walk alongside you during your suffering. He's going to dispense gifts to you freely and keep holding out for you the gift of the crown of life as you keep fighting the good fight. So endure well. Let's pray. Father, I know many of the particular sufferings of those sitting before me, and Lord, I lift them up to you. Oh, Lord, would you produce these things that we just saw in your word in their lives. And Lord, pray for others of us who who aren't enduring that kind of season in the moment. Lord, I pray that you would file this away and you would recall it when we have need of it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.